Thank you, Justin. Thank you, The Keys. What a wonderful testimony. And uh, did you all hear Randy on that bass guitar just a few moments ago? Randy, wherever you went, Brett, that was awesome. <laughs> God bless you. I would encourage you to take your Bibles this morning and turn to Genesis chapter 13. Genesis chapter 13, as we are going to continue in our series on the life of Abraham, talking about the mark of faith this morning. And we're going to look at chapter 13, the entire chapter, the story of Abraham and his nephew, Lot. And the title of this morning's message is God is my inheritance, faith. So last week we spoke about she's my sister, faith. And then the week before that, into the unknown faith. And now this is another journey in the man of faith. As we are looking at Abraham, who we look at and understand as the father of the faith, one of the things that we learned last week, in fact, uh, last week in our grow group classes, my uh, teacher did an outstanding job, and also we have small groups in our grow group classes that we break up into after the lesson, and the conversation just amongst the members of my small group was so helpful to me personally because it's hard to look at the life of Abraham when you see him, the father of the faith, bearing some pretty significant character flaws that we saw last week. And that won't be the last of it either, because Abraham's still got a lot of life in front of him as we continue through this series. But what we see is that the man of faith grows. And more importantly, faith grows in the man of faith. So in chapter 13, beginning, the scripture says this morning, so Abram went up from Egypt, he and his wife and all they had, and Lot with him into the Negev. Let me pause here for just a minute. I meant to go ahead and say this. Why is he in Egypt? Remember last week, he left the Canaan land to which God had called him. He did not consult God in order to see whether God wanted him to leave Canaan. The scripture doesn't say it was wrong to leave Canaan, but nonetheless, he leaves Canaan and then has to come up with a, uh, a scheme in order to survive in Egypt, at least according to his understanding of what it will take to survive, deceives Pharaoh, ends up conning a bunch of people and becoming very wealthy in the process. And then at the end of this process, Pharaoh says, get out. And so Abram leaves, and now he is headed back to Canaan. So that's the context of verse number one. Verse two, now Abram was very rich in livestock, in silver, and in gold. And he journeyed from the Negev as far as Bethel to the place where his tent had been at the beginning, between Bethel and Ai, to the place where he had made an altar at the first and there Abram called upon the name of the Lord. And Lot, who went with Abram, also had flocks and herds and tents, so that the land could not support both of them dwelling together. For their possessions were so great that they could not dwell together. And there was strife between the herdsmen of Abram's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock. At that time, the Canaanites and the Perizzites were dwelling in the land. 
Then Abram said to Lot, Let there be no strife between you and me. Everybody wants this uncle, right? And between your herdsmen and my herdsmen, for we are kinsmen. Is not the whole land before you? Separate yourself from me. If you take the left hand, then I will go to the right. Or if you take the right hand, then I will go to the left. And Lot lifted up his eyes and saw that the Jordan Valley was well watered everywhere like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt in the direction of Zoar. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. So Lot chose for himself all the Jordan Valley, and Lot journeyed east. Thus they separated from each other. Abram settled in the land of Canaan, while Lot settled among the cities of the valley and moved his tent as far as Sodom. Now the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. The Lord said to Abram, after Lot had separated from him, Lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward and southward, and eastward and westward. For all the land that you see, I will give to you and to your offspring forever. I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth, so that if one can count the dust of the earth, your offspring also can be counted. Arise, walk through the length and the breadth of the land, for I will give it to you. So Abram moved his tent and came and settled by the oaks, here are trees again, of Mamre, which are at Hebron. And there he built an altar to the Lord. So God is my inheritance faith. Our main statement this morning is this. If God is my inheritance, what he gives, no one can take away. I made a statement last week that the Bible is certainly more than literature. But it's also at the same time no less than literature. What I meant by that then and what I mean by it now, it's more than literature because we believe it comes from inspiration. Now, we understand that almost every writer, when they're writing creatively, draws from personal inspiration. For instance, uh, Emily Dickinson, the famous American poet, said when poetry would hit her, it would want to cause her to scream in, in the sense that when inspiration of word came upon her, it was just this inner combustion that took place of, I've got to write it down. We understand that that's personal inspiration, and there's so many inspiring works out there. Songwriting, personal inspiration. But the Bible stands alone, a species unique, when it comes to divine inspiration. The New Testament calls it God-breathed in 2 Timothy 3, chapter 3 and verse 16, that all Scripture is given by 
inspiration of God or is literally breathed out by God so that in a mysterious way, God, through his Holy Spirit power, moved the writers of Holy Scripture so that even though they were writing through their personality, even though they were writing, engaging their mental faculties and all of these things, that Scripture came together to be what God wanted it to be. And this is why we teach that the Bible is not only inspired by God, but it's without error in its original documents, meaning it's exactly what God wants it to be. And that not only that, here in our modern times, is not only would we say that it's without error in its original documents, but that the Bible we have today is a faithful preservation of the Bible that was given to the saints all of those years ago when the Holy Spirit inspired these men to put this book together. So the Bible is more than just personal inspiration. It is divine inspiration. But one of the things that is important to understand is not just literary genres, but literary styles which are found within the Bible. In fact, this has probably been the greatest discovery in my personal journey of learning to read the Bible has been uncovering literary styles because there were so many stories that made zero sense to me because I didn't understand that they were a part of a literary scheme. And the Bible was meant originally, as it was written, to be read orally. In fact, in most ancient cultures, the Bible and all ancient literature, no one would have read quietly to themselves. When you read, you read out loud and typically in the presence of others so that people are hearing a story. They're hearing a story. Now, we live in a different time today. We have shorter attention spans today. For instance, how many of you have heard of the English author C.S. Lewis? You heard of him before? One of his most famous works, Mere Christianity, which came out during the season of the Second Great War. Now, Mere Christianity was actually not a book written by C.S. Lewis. It was a series of radio addresses that C.S. Lewis was asked to give by the king himself in order to inspire the nation. Now, if you're anything like me, when you read Mere Christianity, sometimes you have to read a page once, maybe twice, to get what he is saying because it's so dense. And then you realize, oh my goodness, this was casual listening in the 1950s and the 1940s. And now it's taking me two and three times to read a page to understand what Lewis is saying and what it tells us something that today's not only attention span, but today's ability to interpret literature has diminished over time. In fact, I was told yesterday that in order for a book to be profitable in the United States and to be understood by the mass audience of adults and young adults as well, it has to be written on a fifth grade reading level. So that tells us something about our culture today in order how we might understand. But that doesn't mean we have to stay there. 
And I want to help you today in this first place in seeing in this story how to appreciate a literary scheme that we see before us today. Genesis is filled with character contrasts. Genesis is filled with character contrasts. And once you understand this, you'll be able to appreciate in greater depth what many parts of Genesis, which were previously left mysterious, you understand what the author is trying to accomplish. First is this. Character contrasts are literary designs. Character contrasts are literary designs. Remember, the Bible is certainly more than literature, but it's certainly not less. It's written in a certain way that we might gain understanding through its style, not just its content. For instance, there are literary character contrasts in Genesis found in Cain and Abel. This is about the oldest literary contrast, character contrast in the Bible, contrasting Cain and Abel. Another one is we see here, Abram and Lot. We get to see how Abram makes his decisions, and we get to see how Lot makes his. Abram, trusting and resting in God's promises and desiring peace with his family, says, choose, let there not be strife. Lot, the scripture says, looked at the horizon and saw what he thought to be most prosperous and chose that based on what he thought would profit him the most. That is a contrast between these two men. There's another literary contrast. There's many of them in Genesis, but there's also Jacob and Esau. Jacob and Esau, these are the sons of Isaac, the son of Abraham. But Jacob and Esau, the sons of Isaac, are twins who were born. And even though the story centers around Jacob, we have all of this information on Esau. And one of the biggest reasons is because Esau serves as a contrast point for the life of Jacob. Here's another one, Judah and Joseph. I have been asked at least half a dozen times since I've been a pastor, especially when we're in the month of January and people are reading through the Bible. They're reading through Genesis and they get past all this content, Sodom and Gomorrah, stuff like that. But then they come to this story called Judah and Tamar. You know that story where Judah goes to plant some crops and then he goes and he looks for a cult prostitute and he finds this woman that is dressed up deceitfully as if she is a cult prostitute and then he sleeps with her and then she takes his cloak and his staff as an assurance that he will actually pay her uh, when he comes back to return with the goat that he was going to exchange for her services and then when he comes back she's not there she's gone she's emerged and then later we find out that it was actually his daughter-in-law and her name was Tamar and Judah's sons refused to create a child through Tamar. Now, I've been asked at least half a dozen times, why is that in the Bible? That's really bizarre. Until you realize a few chapters later, this is a comparison to a different son of Jacob. One who was approached also by a woman. One who reached out to grab his clothes, and his clothes were also left behind. But contrasted to Judah, where Judah was guilty, Joseph 
was innocent and contrasted to Judah where Joseph went to prison, Judah just went back home. You see how there is a character contrast? Clothes, woman, shady situation, all of that. That is written in a way that you might reflect on these two stories. And as you progress, you're holding them in tandem together, seeking to understand what the Bible says. Character contrasts are not interested in establishing, in establishing good guys and bad guys. Character contrasts are not interested in establishing good guys and bad guys. When we're little, we live in a binary world. Uh, my, my son at the house, there's uh, a movie. We, I haven't let him watch the full thing, but there's a couple scenes in there. It's called Jurassic World. It's one of the remakes of Jurassic Park that came out. I'm a big fan of Jurassic Park. I always loved that movie. And I've always wondered how they knew what dinosaurs sounded like. But nonetheless, every, every movie since Jurassic Park, Tyrannosaurus Rex, when he wars, roars, sounds just like the Tyrannosaurus Rex on Jurassic Park. But we don't really know that he sounded like that. He could have sounded like a chicken or something like that. But, you know, but... But anyway, there is this scene at the end of Jurassic World where the two dinosaurs, the T-Rex and then this genetic super T-Rex mixed with Velociraptor, and you're like, I don't know what any of that means. Just think big lizards. And they're fighting it out, and they're duking it out, and they're, they're biting each other. And I let Judah watch that when he was living, that little segment. And now I let Peter watch that. And to hear him say it, I love it because Peter won't say, Dad, is, there's the good one and there's the bad one. It's, Dad, there's the good one and there's the bad one. See, building that testosterone, right? <laughs> but in his simple world of binary black and white, there are good guys and there are bad guys. But in the scripture, remember the most important verse that we went over a few weeks ago. And Genesis 8.21, if you do not grasp Genesis 8.21, you will not understand the scripture. Genesis 8.21, remember, establishes there is only one kind of human, and that is one that is deeply flawed. And this is why even the people that God uses are going to have character flaws. We looked at those last week with Abraham where he offered his wife to Pharaoh in order to con Pharaoh out of a bunch of resources. That's majorly shady. We know that. Why would God use a man like that? Because that's the only kind of man that exists. Not saying that every man is conning someone else, but every man has character flaws. Every woman has character flaws. Character contrasts are not interested in establishing good guys and bad guys. And friends, this is a, a maturity thing for us. We live in a day and age that wants to establish the good guys and the bad guys. Whether it be through social positions, political positions, whether it be as something as silly as sports teams, we want to establish that there are good teams and bad teams. Good people and bad people. We have the good Christians over here, and then we have the bad LGBTQ plus community over there. That's the binary way of thinking that our culture has brought before us. Or if you're on the other side, the good LGBTQ plus 
community over there and the bad Christians over here. And that's just two categories that I could pick. The good Democrats over there and the bad Republicans over there. The ba- good, uh, what I just say, I, I got to be fair. The good, Dem- okay, the good Republicans over here and the bad Democrats. You know what I'm saying. All right. But, but listen, Paul says something that is, this is a Christian maturity thing. Our battle's not against flesh and blood. Our battle's not against flesh and blood. That means no matter how bad things get, and no matter how bad people act, the enemy at the end of the day is not another person. The evil powers and forces at work in this world that are seeking to destroy us are truly the enemy. But our battle is not against flesh and blood. And character contrasts are not interested in establishing good guys and bad guys because I was listening to this story this week. There was this lady who was ministering to this Swedish woman who had never heard anything about Jesus. And she started sharing scriptures with her and they just started reading through the Bible together and this woman came to Christ and she was just amazed at the message of the Bible. And... uh, A few weeks in, she came to the lady who was discipling her and said, you will not believe I was digging around in the scripture and I found this amazing verse. I've got to read it to you. She said, well, what is it? She said, listen, this is so beautiful. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. She'd never seen John 3.16 before. And the lady who was giving the testimony said, I just thought everybody knew that one. I didn't think to even share that. And she said, I thought to read John 3, 16 for the first time, what that must have felt like. Because in our binary world of the good guys and the bad guys, the good girls and the bad girls, John 3, 16 says God loves everyone. In fact, he loves them so much that he sent his one and only son to die for them. Our battle's not against flesh and blood. Character contrasts are not built on establishing the good and the bad. Rather, it's something else. Can character contrasts are a word to the wise. Character contrasts are a word to the wise. Proverbs chapter 1 and verse 7 says this, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. Let me read it one more time. It's so good. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. What does it mean to fear God? It means to take Him seriously, not casually. It means to take Him seriously, not casually. It's the acknowledgement that this is His world, and He's designed it to work in a certain way, and He's given us His word for His glory and for human flourishing. And to take His word seriously is to honor Him. A fear is a reverence. It's showing respect. It's saying, I'm taking heavy what you are saying. And the scripture teaches us through stories like this. As you contemplate, look at what Abraham did. Look at his trust here in this contentious situation with his relatives. And also as you contemplate, look at Lot. Look at how Lot was just trying to get ahead. Look at how Lot could see only dollars and prosperity and even to the point where it caused him to to ignore some very dangerous things out there you see genesis is filled with character contrasts 
This is why we're to read the Bible so that the Holy Spirit might bring to life this already living book in our hearts and instruct us that we might grow in wisdom. Also, we learn from this story, the promise of God changes you. The promise of God changes you. We learn from this that Abram is still human, just not the same one he was in Egypt. That Abram is still a human, just not the same one he was in Egypt. He now has returned. He has come back to Canaan land. And specifically, if you look down in verse 3, he journeyed on from the Negev, the wilderness below Israel or Canaan land, in between Canaan and Egypt, and journeyed to the place where he'd been at the beginning. Man, that's so beautiful to me. If you get off track, where do you go? The last place you were when you knew you were where you were supposed to be. That's a wisdom thing that we can gather from this passage. Abram is still human, just not the same one he was in Egypt. I love Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 through 13, which says this, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Simpler translation, make good decisions that honor Christ in order that Christ's word might grow in your heart. But know when you do, it's God's Holy Spirit at work in you, enabling you to do this. Truly, obedience is the evidence that we are members of Christ's family. Abram is still a human, but it's shown here that God's promises are at work in his heart. Not only that, resting in the promises of God is less about holding on to them and more about them holding on to you. Oh, this is so good. i got to say it again. Resting in the promises of God is a less about holding on to them and more about them holding on to you. I want to say one other statement. The lack of resources in Canaan is now the second deficiency Abram has experienced in the Canaan land. I'd never thought about this until this week. So he gets to the Canaan land after he leaves Haran and then before that Ur of the Chaldeans. So he gets to Canaan land and remember what happened? Famine. So he had to go to Egypt deficiency in the place of inheritance interesting now he gets back to Canaan land and now what's going on not a famine on the climate sense but a famine that now is created because the land is not prosperous enough to support two families his and Lot's and somehow this land is supposed to support all of Abram's descendants What does this say about Abram's faith? This says about Abram's faith, not just believing that God is going to deliver his promise and give him the Canaan land, but God is going to act on his promise and actually make the Canaan land sufficient to keep Abraham's family there. It looks like a patch of dust at this point. Resting in the promises of God is more about, excuse me, is less about holding on to them and more about them holding on to you. Which brings me to the next thing. The extent to which we can are rested in God's promises is the determining factor 
and our peace at being at peace with others. So the extent I've misworded this. What does it say on the screen? To which we are rest. Yeah, there we go. I've got a typo here. The extent to which we are resting in God's promises is the determining factor to our being at peace with others. You see the story here. You have Abram and you have Lot. And then you clearly have some faithful workers for these two men. Because these men are willing to argue with each other in order to make sure their employer is succeeding. So it creates an argument. It creates strife. Now here's where it gets interesting. Whose inheritance is this? It's Abram's. But Abram has brought along Lot and allowed him a place here in the land of his inheritance. There's a story in my family that goes back a couple of generations. After one of my relatives died, there was a divvying out of possessions. And there was a sheet that was presented to an attorney of where the furniture would go and what pieces would go to certain places. And I had one relative that insisted that this piece of furniture went to her, even though the sheet said it went to her sister. And there arose such a great argument there up in the hills of Tennessee that the person overseeing the divvying out of the possessions uh, pulled a drawer out of the piece of furniture and gave one lady the drawer and then took the other piece of furniture and said, you take that. Really, arguing over furniture? Listen, your family's worse than mine. I'm just kidding. I don't know that to be true. It's just people, right? It takes faith to stop arguing with your family. That's another application here. It takes faith to stop arguing with your family. Philippians chapter 2, verses 14 through 15. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent children of God, without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you will shine as lights in the world. You see, there is no problem from a world's perspective in understanding people arguing over furniture, possessions, and inheritance. But when somebody is willing to stop the argument and trust that, you know what, for the sake of peace, I'm going to trust that God's going to fix this. The world sees that and says, that's not normal. Somebody is trusting. I'm reminded of the story where Jesus was approached by a man, and this is Luke 12, 13 through 15, if you want to write it down. And the man says, Lord, tell my brother to, invite the, to divide the inheritance with me. You know what Jesus says to him? He says, what's that to me? Who made me judge over you? And then he goes on to say, you should be careful against covetousness. Now, I'm not saying that injustice can't take place in inheritance. We know it can. And sometimes it's very unfortunate and sad. We all know that. But at the same thing, at the same time, we're reminded that we see in Lot's story as we can see in our own lives, there's a difference between holding on to your things and your things holding on to you. And when your things hold on to you, it ends up taking you to a place you don't want to be. And that's what we see in Lot's life. 
Romans chapter 12, verses 16 through 21 says this, live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. What does that mean? Don't let you be the reason that there's not peace in your family. Don't let you be the reason there's not peace amongst your community. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Principle number three. The contrast between Abram and Lot shows us our life rests on one of two things. Heavenly promises or human prosperity. The contrast between Abram and Lot show our life rests on two th- one of two things, heavenly promises or human prosperity. The danger of basing your life on what you can see is that looks are deceiving. Even godly people such as Lot, and the New Testament calls him a righteous man, are deceived by what looks good. Looks are deceiving. Are deceiving. Also, Abram's peacemaking is not built on passive, but active faith. I'm not inviting you to a life of passivity. I'm inviting you and me to a life of active faith. I'm not saying, hey, just be a doormat and let people walk over you. I'm saying hold fiercely to God's promises and that know if even for the sake of peace you have to lose in the moment, God is faithful to not just complete the good work in you, but to make sure he completes the good work in the situation that you're facing. It is the little faith decisions which prepare us for the big ones. And here's what I want to come to, the last thing I want to say. Because the danger in listening to a message like this is a misinterpretation would be an open oversimplification and just saying, Matt, you're telling me to be a doormat. Just let people do whatever. Abram discovers that what God gives, no one can take away. You, you see the story. I imagine they're standing on a, a height somewhere, that they're standing on a mountain. And Abram says, listen, you go left and I'll go right, or you go right and I'll go left. By the way, typically, we don't know for sure if it was taking place here, but typically when you see left here in the Bible, left meant north and right meant south. I don't know that it means it here, but the reason was is that when people used left and right decisions in the land, they made those decisions facing the sunrise. So sunrise is east, so left is north, right is south. So maybe that's what that means here. Maybe not. But nonetheless, Abram says, you go this way, and I'll go that way. And Lot chose a particular way next to the river. And then God takes Abram up on the hill. And he says, I want you to look. I want you to look to the north. I want you to look to the south. I want you to look to the east. And I want you to look to the west. Abram, it's all yours. Whoa. 
I thought Abram just gave away at least a quarter of it. No, God says, Abram, what I give, no man can give away. This is what it means to be held on to the promises of God. I'm reminded of Revelation chapter 3 and verse 7 through 8. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write the words of the Holy One to the true one who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, and who shuts and no one opens. I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. The thing I love about that passage, you can't stop what God is doing in your life. You can't even give it away. This is how secure we are in God's promised inheritance for our lives. In the moment, Abraham says, let me have peace with you, Lot. Abraham doesn't know it. But God goes ahead and tells him just after, Abram, it's all yours anyway. It's all yours anyway. This is what it means to have a life contrasted, holding on to God and his word and his promises with a life that makes decisions based on what looks the best in the moment. Which life are you living are you holding on to Jesus and what you know to be true on the best days and the worst days? Or are you chasing the next best thing? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, in this literary contrast, I pray you would speak to our hearts. Would you show us today what we're really holding on to? I want you to do an honest inventory, folks in this room, an honest inventory of your heart. What are you holding on to most fiercely in your life? Is it a person? Is it a, an idea of family? Is it possessions? Is it a sense of justice? for a wrong? Or are you holding on to Jesus? Which doesn't make you blind to all those good desires and all the unfortunate hurts. But it just helps them to grow strangely dim. Be honest with yourself today. What are you holding on to? And remember that for those who belong to Jesus, regardless of what you're holding on to, he's holding on to you. You are forever in his grip. It's in Christ's name I pray. Amen and amen.